Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all of them, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 128. So I'm going to do a quick intro here and introduce our guest on the podcast this week. I want to just give you a frame of reference, as I always like to do. I'm recording this intro on the 29th of April, 2021. This interview was done on... (laughs) My timing is weird. The interview was done on the 27th of April, 2021. And the reason that I uh, reached out to this person is because I'm really interested in Ayurveda and I wanted someone to come on the podcast who has an expertise in this area. And Susan was the perfect guest for this uh, conversation. I met Susan, not in person, virtually, because she is a dear friend of a friend of mine, Margaret Furtado. And if you go a couple episodes back, I interviewed Margaret about her path to becoming a doctor. And she also is a yoga teacher and is a yoga practitioner. And so it was through my conversation with Margaret that I mentioned my interest in interviewing somebody who's an expert in Ayurveda And Margaret was kind enough to connect me to Susan. And that's how Susan got to be um, someone that I reached out to. And she was gracious enough to accept the invitation to be on the podcast. So you'll hear in the beginning of the podcast episode, just a little bit of back and forth between us about how we met. And that's just a frame of reference for you there. And also just a frame of reference for you in terms of why I wanted to have this conversation. You know, even though my podcast is for yoga teachers, Ayurveda is part of the tradition of yoga. Uh, I certainly don't know much about it. Uh, And you'll hear more in this episode about how it's connected to yoga practice. And I think that as a teacher, it's important for us, you know, even for someone like myself who focuses on anatomy to at least have a cursory understanding of other aspects of the practice, whether it's energetics or uh, Chinese medicine or, you know, Chinese medicine isn't directly related to yoga, but uh, is certainly in the same uh, category of, of wellness. So that's the story there. Now, Before I launch into the episode uh, and give you an intro of Susan's extensive background in this area, I want to just remind you that I recently created a download, which is a compilation of all my 
popular downloads for teachers. And you can get this on my Facebook page. It's essentially an ebook that puts together everything from my sequence building template to um, my 10 key steps to understanding anatomy. So it's really a number of different things. My uh, under, my um, breakdown of myofascial release, what is fascia. So it's a really great resource guide for teachers. If you're not on Facebook, feel free to DM me on Instagram and I will get you that ebook. Now, let me get into introducing Susan Weiss Bolin. Susan is an author and an Ayurvedic consultant. And before COVID, she taught cooking med meditation and led sacred site tours, mostly in India. In 2008, she received her first certification in Ayurveda from the Chopra Center. And I'm sure you've heard of that, Deepak Chopra, the Chopra Center in California. And in subsequent years, she studied with Dr. Vasant Ladd in New Mexico and India, an Ayurvedic cookbook and author teacher, Amadea Morningstar in New Mexico. Susan wrote her first book, and it is the bestseller called Ayurveda Beginner's Guide, Essential Ayurvedic Principles and Practices to Maintain Balance and Heal Naturally. And that was published in 2018. It has sold over 30,000 copies and has been translated into four languages. Her new book, which I have on my Amazon wish list, is called Seasonal Self-Care Rituals, Eat, Breathe, Move, and Sleep Better According to Your Dosha. You can subscribe to her newsletter and read her blog at www.breatheayurveda.com. She's on Facebook as Breathe Ayurveda and Instagram with her name, Susan Weiss Bolin. Actually, it's Susan E. Weiss Bolin. I'll put all of this in the show notes. She lives with her husband, Larry, and their three dogs, Ella, Shadow, and Junie, who is a rescue from Poon. India, if you can believe that. We talk about that in the podcast. And she currently lives in the woods in Ryerstown, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore City. So we're going to get into this episode. Um, I do want to just mention, we, we cover a, a number of different things. And at a couple of points, we do touch on different topics that are topical. And by that, I mean, there's a couple of references to politics and there might even be a little bit of salty language, uh, not related to politics, but just other things. So just, just a heads up that, you know, this is a real conversation. I don't really like to edit anything that is said in the podcast. Um, I like it to be real and spontaneous and organic. Um, and it's not really meant to represent any particular um, uh, uh, stance or, or anything along those lines. Um, it's really just conversations. So with that, uh, I invite you to maybe make a cup of herbal tea <laughs> and relax, sit back, maybe grab a notebook and a pen and enjoy this conversation that I had on Ayurveda with Susan Weiss Bolin. Let's get to that tape. Hello. Hi, coming in. Hold on. Cameras. There you go. How are you? Hi, great. How are you? So nice to meet you. You too. Just trying to get my light plugged in. Here we go. Thank you to uh, Margaret for connecting us. I know. To, 
boy, she's a, you know, I had a bookstore for 10 years and she was one of my customers and she's definitely a person you don't forget. <laughs> so. Wow. That's amazing. Did she tell you how we know each other? I can't remember. Why don't you tell me? I live in Boston. And when she lived here, she was a longtime student of yoga at a studio where I taught. So I probably had a similar experience in that, you know, I didn't own a bookstore, but I was teaching yoga classes and yeah, definitely is somebody that I never forgot coming right. to my classes. And yeah. uh, so that's been great. And I just had her on the podcast two weeks ago. And when I mentioned Ayurveda, she said, oh, you have to talk to my friend, Susan. Yeah, it was something when she had her Ayurveda consultations with me, you know, she was a nutritionist in a hospital and she was like, I really, I, she said, I feel like I know more than the doctors know, but nobody takes me seriously because I'm not right. a doctor. Right. And so, right. you know, she just took that energy and she did it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is inspiring. Her episode on the podcast was super inspiring. Oh, I can't wait to inspiring. listen to it. Yeah. So this is, it's so cool because it already was an interest of mine to have somebody on the show, uh, on the podcast to talk about this, because, you know, although my podcast is called conversations for yoga teachers, I feel like yoga and Ayurveda are definitely joined. Um, although my focus of teaching is really anatomy. So I don't have a background that is in this area. So, uh -huh. but yet on a personal level, I'm very interested in finding out more about it. And I bet there are just a lot of my listeners out there who are interested too. So I really, um, I would love to just kind of frame this from the point of view of finding out a little bit about you and what got you into this. Mm -hmm. And then to give people kind of a primer on what is Ayurveda. And from there, we can kind of take it wherever it goes. I mean, I find these conversations kind of organically happen. And, um, and that to me is the best thing. And especially when it's someone like how we met through somebody else, yeah. that to me is like just such a beautiful way of having somebody on the show. Sometimes I get emails like, do you want this person on your show? I'm like, I don't really know that person. So it just feels so forced, but this is, this is so great. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning with, why don't you tell people who you are and what you do and why you do it? Okay. So um, my name is Susan Weiss Bolin and I live in uh, outside of Baltimore city in the woods. It's very beautiful here. And um, I had well, I have a, you know, so I'm almost 58 years old, so I have a huge life history behind me. But um, I would say that um, I'd always been interested in yoga and meditation. That was always something that was all in my life as an adult. When I was right after I graduated college in my early 20s, I moved to Israel and I, I lived in Israel for 10 years. And while I was there, I, funnily enough, in Israel, I learned about yoga and Buddhist meditation. Lots of Israelis go to India on their year before the army or right after the army. And um, so they come back and they picked up like a lot of these esoteric sciences and so on. 
and the, a lot of people. And so this was back in the eighties. And so I, I had some neighbors who had done that and they were having yoga classes in their little tiny Tel Aviv apartment. And then we would meditate and we would learn breath work and, wow. and all sorts of stuff sitting there and um, really, really cool. A bunch of Jews who went to India teaching other Jews these really foreign modalities and, you know, all in Hebrew with some Sanskrit thrown in. And wow, that was really cool. And I, I really um, just, you know, uh, just, it felt like I was remembering something I used to be. I was, a, I learned how to meditate so easily and I loved it. And um, the yoga poses felt very natural and rejuvenating to me. And I love that also. And so eventually I moved back to America um, in my 30s and just continued the whole yoga and meditation situation. And this was in the um, early 90s. And then there was like, you know, one place to meditate and one place to do yoga. <laughs> and it was the same people that just went between right. the two, you know, it's right. such a different world now than it used to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, I live in Boston. There's the Cambridge Insight Center. Right. I've been there for a long, long time. But you know, prior to COVID, there was a yoga studio every 10 feet. Exactly. And I, so when I actually came back to America, well, even before then I started going on silent meditation retreats and I, um, I started at the Gaia house in Southern England, but then that was affiliated with the insight meditation society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And so when I moved back to the States, I, I probably went twice a year for, oh, probably 15 years to do silent meditation retreats in Barrie. Yeah. So that was, oh my God, such a backbone for my practice. It was incredible. But all how this time, those, how long were those retreats? Um, usually uh, either seven to 10 days. Okay. And this is what days. is classified, correct me if I'm wrong, as Vipassana. Exactly. Okay. I always like to call it the Vipassana light because like at a true Vipassana retreat, like you, you eat breakfast and lunch and you have nothing to eat afternoon. And I, I'm pretty sure you don't speak at all, but the way that the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, what they um, do, you do have dinner, even though it's light. And um, every couple of days, there's like a group session where you're allowed to talk and talk to your teacher and so on. Wow. And I think like at Goenka and some of the others, they don't do that, but I'm not positive about that. Right. But so, um, but I love that, and that, you know, I would use all my vacation time to go on these retreats and really, wow. Yeah. And, and back then people thought you were really weird if you did that. If Well, I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the Rolling Stones in the sixties and like Woodstock, like, even though that was more the sixties and you're talking the nineties, it kind of. I think yoga, it really took a while before it became more mainstream. Uh, yeah. I think if you, you think about the Beatles in the fifties going to Rishikesh. Yeah. Meeting Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and, and coming into transcendental meditation and then doing these songs with like Sanskrit chants in them and nobody knew what was going right. on, you know? Right. Yeah. And so that for me, you know, obviously I wasn't like, I was born in 63, so I didn't really know the Beatles right. story much until later, but that to me was, um, one of the beginnings of the, 
modern Western culture of this yoga meditation thing happening over here. For sure. But, but you were still other, like it was still weird. Like I actually remember my family saying to me that I was insane <laughs> for going somewhere to be silent for a week and paying them, you know? I, and then of yeah. course, 20 years later, they asked me to teach them how to meditate. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. And it's funny because even now, um, well, I don't think Vipassana, I would, would not consider it mainstream. I mean, certainly there are high-end retreats where that's part of the experience. Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's a, what's happened to meditation and uh, the mindfulness, which is not, which is not meditation, but, Right. you know, it's, it'll come back around. It's sort of like this yoga studio in every corner where, and I mean, no disrespect, but you have yoga teachers that took a weekend training and open a studio, right? you know? Um, so, and I, I sort of look at it like buyer beware. Like if you're going to go to a yoga studio, find out where they studied, how long they studied, what the style is. Are they going to put you in a headstand in the first half hour of class? You right. Know? Right. Yeah. Right. So we so really from, from, that, from that point that you were going on these retreats, then then you were living in where were you at that? Point? I was in Baltimore when I came okay. back from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. I I, well, I lived in D.C. for a little while and actually worked at the Israeli embassy and I took uh, meditation classes at um, Georgetown University, which was my first real American classes, but they were on Jewish meditation which is a beautiful practice of visualization, um, chanting mantras in Hebrew, uh, Jewish prayers and letters and so on. Jewish meditation is ancient. It's just as ancient as um, Indian meditation, over 5,000 years old. Um, so it's sort of like when I started studying the Indian and the Jewish stuff together, I was like, wow, this stuff all happened at the same time. Yeah. And Chinese medicine, but just in different parts of the world. And so, Eventually, after I was like a yogi and a meditator and all that, um, I, I eventually opened a bookstore and my bookstore was a new age bookshop that carried all these books on yoga, meditation, vegetarian eating. I'd become a vegetarian when I was 16. So that was all part of it too. Um, but I had never heard the word Ayurveda until I opened my bookstore in 2004. Okay. And I was in my early 40s. And so I, I it just... Ayurveda, you know, I started um, ordering the books from my store and I was recommended to get Ayurvedic books. And so I started looking through them and I had read a lot of Deepak Chopra in the nineties where he talks about Ayurveda, but it wasn't like his main deal. It was like sort of like consciousness and right. universality and creating your reality and all that. And I, I, I absolutely loved it. So I, you know, that went along with who I was at the time, but I didn't really pay attention to the Ayurveda part. But at this point in my life, and for a long time, I had been overweight. I, at one point, I weighed 240 pounds. And so when I, you know, opened my bookstore, I think I was 220 or something. I don't know. But I knew that I had to make some big change because I was just so tired of carrying this weight. Even though I, I had done everything, traveled the world, done all my yoga, all that didn't really stop me from anything. But I was really heavy and I knew that this wasn't good. Right, right. <laughs> and even though I was a vegetarian, I call myself a pea vegetarian, which is pasta, peanut butter, and pizza. 
Wow. That is not the best way to be a vegetarian. (laughs) There's some cookies and cakes thrown in there as well. And so um, I looked into it and I found out that there was this detoxification treatment program called Panchakarma that was an Ayurvedic protocol where you go somewhere and they do these oil treatments to you, massages and um, enemas, herbalized oil enemas, and you eat a certain type of food and involve meditation and yoga. And that could maybe help me get rid of a lot of the toxins in my body and inflammation. And maybe I thought it could jumpstart me on on a different path. And oh my God. Yes, it did <laughs> completely changed my life. So I, I really pretty rapidly lost about 50 pounds. And then I also, at the same time, I lost 80 points on my cholesterol. It went from 240 to 160 and um, my cholesterol. And so it was really, I never thought about that for my, my cholesterol, and my weight were like really close. <laughs> so that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and so just the, learning this Ayurvedic lifestyle, I came home from that, um, I think it was a week long or 10 day Panchakarma, which was in San Diego. There was at that time, the Chopra Center in Carlsbad, California. Yeah. Yes. They closed it. It's not there anymore. But um, so after, after I did that, it was a fantastic experience for me. And we, we studied Ayurveda every day and we did yoga and meditation and had all the treatments and I came home and I was like oh my god what do I do I don't know how do I keep this up and but I had uh books of course in my store especially Amadea Morningstars the Ayurvedic cookbook which is a classic cookbook so I took that brought it home and I started cooking Ayurvedically buying all the spices and the beans and the cookware to make this type of food in and just everything changed. I, you know, I learned about the doshas, of course, your mind, body constitution, vata, pitta, and kapha. And I was kapha. I was carrying a lot of kapha, weight, water, gunk, just stuff with me mentally and physically. And so after I started eating a kapha reducing diet, like everything just fell away mentally and physically. I mean, in every aspect of my life, I, I can't even tell you, like I finally, I got rid of clothes that were like a size 22. I cleaned out cabinets and closets and bedside tables. And like, just when you, when you have a lot of kapha dosha, which we'll talk about, it's an accumulation of earth and water and it can become like, like a brick. It can become solid and you just live in that, you know? And so when the kapha starts to melt away, like you just see this whole new world out there around you and all the possibilities. And so that's what happened. I mean, kapha melted away from my heart and just everything in my life changed. And I want to say changed, but I also became like 100% me. Like I was no longer like dragging all that extra weight and having all that extra stuff in my house. And like, I just felt like this freedom it was just incredible. And I, one thing, and I know you're probably going to get into this, but I want to make sure I ask as I'm having this moment of question. And I wonder if someone else listening is just the connection between what you're eating and your mindset. Cause it sounds like a lot of what you're describing is yeah. less about what you were eating and is more yeah. about how you perceive yourself, how you perceive the world the mindset you have. And so I'm, I'm super curious to think about how, what you 
eat affects that. And I just want to make one quick note, just so you know, the only reason I'm looking back is because I have a new puppy and he's in the crate chewing a bone. That's not really a bone, but it's like a toy. And so what I'm actually going to do is I'm just going to move us just so I can keep my eye on him. Absolutely. Um, God forbid he were to ever aspirate a little piece of the thing, which I don't think he will, but, um, I have been challenged in, um, trying to, uh, keep him occupied. If I happen to have, a Ooh, happen to have a recording that, um, corresponds with when I'm, when I'm, uh, when I'm, uh, doing a podcast. Let me just take one quick moment because for some reason I just lost our, uh, I just lost our view. Hang on one second, Susan. There you are. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, so that, that I'm like super fascinated about because what you were just saying, I was thinking as you were talking, it sounds like what she's eating is changing more than just her physical body. So in, in my first book, Ayurveda Beginner's Guide, mm -hmm. I have a section on taste and emotion, and that goes right along with it. So there's a word in Sanskrit, um, rasa, R-A-S-A, and rasa means taste and emotion. So there's like no such thing as non-emotional eating. All you're eating is just feeling some emotion. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So definitely, I mean, I... Boy, it was such a, it was truly such an emotional period when I was losing the weight. And I do want to just say, though, that my experience with Ayurveda began with weight loss, but that was a sort of like a sidebar almost like that. That wasn't the whole picture that just had to happen. That was the catalyst for you. Yeah. That made me a true believer when, you know, that was 12, 13 years ago and I've kept the weight off and it's just the way it is. So um, but it not, not all about, not everything in Ayurveda is about weight loss, but it's about eating to balance your dosha, your mind, body constitution. So, but it's connected to emotions. So what you crave is connected to an emotion. Um, mm -hmm. like if you crave sweets, maybe you don't have enough sweet in your life. Um, you're not good at giving or receiving love. If you crave bitter, maybe you um, hold a grudge against somebody or somebody treated you wrong. You know, there's, if you crave sour, I mean, there's something. And so I go through, I, I learned this from Amadea Morningstar and she told me I could expand upon it in my book. So it is an Ayurveda beginner's guide. When you crave a taste, what it means emotionally and physically. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. That was really fascinating. So fascinating. <laughs> so from that point, did you get into working with people to share what you had learned? How did that, is that how? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now, first of all, your puppy's adorable. Oh, <laughs> what's, what's his name? His name is Coco. Coco. We rescued him from Arkansas via a New England based rescue organization. Yeah. And um, he's been with us seven weeks and he's, he knows you're talking about him. He's looking yeah. up. He's overtaken my life. Yeah. So, yes. yes. Here's one of my girls. We're uh, not there yet with him. He he can't. Yeah. If he was not in that crate. He would be running around getting into trouble. Yeah. Uh, That's he, my. I have a rescue from India. That one I brought home from India. From oh Pune. Goodness. And I, I have another rescue from West Virginia. Yeah. And we just lost one. Our 16 and a half year old just last week. Oh, I'm but so she had a beautiful life. <laughs> oh yeah. I had a lab to 15 and a half and she died five and a half years ago. And 
my life scenario would not support a dog until very recently. So that's why, um, that's why I'm able to, and it's, it's just kind of going back to a lot of the things that I remember about having a dog and it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. So yeah. So so tell me how you then shifted to helping people. Yeah. So, um, when I came back from the Chopra center and I lost all that weight and I, I went to, um, Kripalu and I took a, a cooking week intensive with Amadea Morningstar in Massachusetts. And oh, that was incredible to learn Ayurvedic cooking with her. And then I, I, yeah, I just decided that I just, I had so much success and I had my bookstore and all my customers were like, what are you doing? You look amazing. Da, da, da. And I was like, I'm doing Ayurveda. What is that? So I decided to get a certification in Ayurveda from the Chopra Center. So I, I did a, like, um, and like an eight month program or something with them in 2008. And I also took, um, Ayurveda cooking intensive courses with Amadea in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. So I became certified in cooking and then I eventually became certified in, um, as an Ayurveda health counselor. Uh, or a practitioner, whatever you call it. And so that was all in 2008. And I had my bookshop. And so people were just, help me, help me. So I started doing consultation in my bookstore. I had a separate event space and so on. Wow. So I started doing consultations. And then he, so that was like 2009 or 10. And by 2014, so much of my life was uh, teaching Ayurveda, seeing clients, teaching in other places, doing workshops and retreats all over the US. It was like crazy that I decided that I just, I couldn't do both anymore, bookstore and Ayurveda. So I decided to close the bookstore and just do Ayurveda. So I closed my bookstore in 2014 and uh, end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And so since then, I've just uh, had um, an Ayurvedic practice. And it was right after I closed the bookstore that I got a call from a company hiring me to write a book. And I wrote this one, the Ayurveda Beginner's Guide. And that became, this is sold like 30, 40,000 copies and it's in five languages. It's crazy. It's a beautiful. Wow. Well, I don't know if you can see any of the yeah. stopping on yeah. any pictures, but it's really, it's really a story of like, if you build it, they will come. Uh, so absolutely the whole thing. And then through that, I got an agent and then a contract with Simon and Schuster. And this is my brand new book. Oh, yes. I have that on my Amazon wish list. When when we connected via Margaret, I went on and and put it in there because I had an interest in getting a book and now, and I didn't know which one, but now I know which one. (laughs) I think you have to get both of them. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I didn't know about the first one. I just, when Ah. I I looked on Amazon for some reason, I think that one must've come up first. They go together well, they go together really well because you learn a lot of the practicalities of Ayurveda in the first book. And the second book is more seasonal rituals, grocery lists, what to eat, when, and so on. Got it. So what is your, I mean, you gave up the bookstore in 2015. So that was six years ago. So what does your life look like now? Are you mainly writing or what's, what is, what is yeah, it? Yeah, like? I'm writing and uh, doing Ayurvedic consultations now with Zoom in the past year and my books being out there, I have clients all over the world. Wow. And I love that. They used to come in here. The room I'm sitting in right now used to be my teaching kitchen. <laughs> I taught cooking for like 10 years and I had this huge teaching kitchen where I could get like 20, 30 people in it for lessons. And when COVID hit, I said to my husband, we are never having that many people in our house like ever again. And right. so we just, we just turned it into a sunroom. It's just like, oh. no. 
took out all the material, the kitchen equipment, and now I have <laughs> a sunroom. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so, you, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm really changing what I do. I, I don't think I'll be seeing clients in person anymore, which is fine. I did it for over a dozen years in the cooking classes too. Um, so it's, it's pretty much one-on-one -on -one consultations. I do a lot of, uh, workshops and now book events via zoom for different bookstores or library systems and yoga studios and so on all over the world. And, um, so I just teach, teach and write. Um, and in addition to that, for the past also dozen years or so, I've been taking people to India, like once or twice a year, I take trips to India. And I take people to see the sacred sites, but also to experience Ayurveda in India. So my last trip was December 2019. <laughs> and then COVID hit. And so in India, as you know, has just been devastated by COVID. Oh, it breaks my heart. Well, I can imagine. I mean, I've not been there, but I can't imagine someone like yourself who's been there a lot to see those images. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. And I don't want to get into politics, but their, their government is not helping any. Right. So thank God we had a change here. <laughs> right. And that definitely helped. Yeah, I was interested. It was interesting to me. And maybe you could shed some light on this, that they continued to have that festival a few weeks ago. And I saw them. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if that was driven by passion for their faith or uh, I mean, it was just yeah, it, it's hard for me to say, except for that, the, um, the, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, um, he's what's called a Hindu nationalist. Um, and in my opinion, he's very racist against Muslims and um, any non Hindus in India and the Kumbh Mela festival is a big Hindu festival. And so I just think he wanted to show his nationalist color. Oh, I see. I see. These things happen. It's pretty Got much it. like how Donald Trump would have rallies. Oh, got it. I understand. Yeah. So, I mean, like you say, I mean, be that as it may, on any level, it's heartbreaking to see what is happening. Um, do you envision at some point in the future you will go back? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. they're all they're going to need so much help to bring tourists back and to spend money. And yep. yeah, this has been such a huge part of my life since 2006 was my first trip to India. Mm -hmm. And I have like the same people I work with every mm -hmm. year, a couple times a year. My husband now goes with me and yeah, we have these beautiful tours we take people on. And mm -hmm. if you are going to want to go deeper into yoga, meditation, and Ayurveda, into the, the Indian, the Vedic teachings, not so much Hindu, although Hinduism comes from all of this, but we have the Vedas, which predate Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm -hmm. And you have these really, really beautiful, wise teachings in there that Ayurveda comes from. There's so many different forms of meditation, like Siddhi and so on come transcendental meditation, right. Kriya yoga, they all come out of the Vedas. Mm -hmm. And so to actually go to India and feel that where it came from. I take people to these ancient like yoga shalas on the Ganges and we, we practice yoga out there and breath works and mantra and so on. To do it on that land just connects you to the real practice. Yeah. Um, the real practice of Hatha yoga. And then you can look into like Bhakti yoga and Raja yoga. And we, we visit other places that bring in the more 
um, consciousness-based forms of yoga, not the exercise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to, for people to understand that, because you know, a lot of people who practice yoga in America, they have no idea that yoga is just a couple of asanas and the rest is in your head. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, I kind of think of it as the way of being physically, but then there's all the other ways of being, even the ways of being that aren't of our physical body. Absolutely. So I'm curious, the people that are, are seeing you now, everything is online. What kinds of things do they reach out to you with? What, what's, and and are they all very kind of indoctrinated into Mm. using Ayurveda or do you have people who are just like, I'm at the end of my rope. I've been to a bunch of physicians and this is like my last ditch effort. That's mostly it. Really? Most of the people who've been to doctor after doctor after doctor, and nobody has an answer for them and they give up on them, Uh you know? And so they're like when Western medicine can't help them anymore, they start looking into Chinese medicine or Indian medicine or other indigenous forms of medicine. Uh And, and also so many people are learning about how to use food as medicine. And that's like the main tenet of Ayurveda is how to eat properly for your dosha. Mm -hmm. So I would say most of the people they've lost hope and Mm -hmm. no one listens to them. Like when you go to an Ayurveda consultation, I spend an hour listening to you. And then I start to make recommendations. Like we want to get to the root of the issue. Mm -hmm. We don't just want to put a little salve on your hand where you have a rash. You want to find out why this is occurring to you when it began. Do you have too much heat in your body, too cold, too dry, too wet, you know, and then we figure out how to create balance. But there's also in my practice, people who definitely um, are going to yoga classes or taking yoga teacher training and had a day of Ayurveda and it rang true to them. And they want to learn more. Um, And there's a lot of women who are in their like mid forties to mid fifties, perimenopausal, menopausal, postmenopausal, who are just going through this big shift in life and they're ready to they change to feel better, which is perfect for me because at almost 58, I've gone through that with Ayurveda. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I attract those kind of clients who are trying to find balance in their life now. Mm-hmm. And also I, I lost all my weight in my mid forties and people like often think like, it's so hard to lose weight when you're older, da, 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 but you can. Right. <laughs> so right. I like to teach people how to balance that out. So you can stop worrying about that shit already, you know? Right. Right. I mean, right. Like I hear like Oprah is still like, you know, she's, I don't know if she's still working with Weight Watchers, but just yeah. still going on about, I can eat bread. I'm like, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, over interesting. It. <laughs> that's interesting to me. And, and I think too, about our connection via Margaret, who is a dietitian. So how, how does a course around nutrition or a course around not, not a literal course, but I mean, talk to me about Ayurveda and nutrition and are they one in the same? Or are the approaches different? Yeah. So the approaches are, are usually based on the person's Ayurvedic dosha. Mm-hmm. So in Ayurveda, we have what we call dosha, which is a mind-body combination. And so we have people that are called vata dosha, V-A, and vata is comprised of the elements outside of us of uh, air and space. So the air and space elements make a person a little cold, maybe a little bit creaky, prone to arthritis, gas, bloating, uh, dry skin, dry hair, dry intestine, 
and that kind of thing. So they have too much of the air and space element and that's vata dosha. Then the second dosha is called pitta dosha, P-I-T-T-A. And pitta is comprised of the elements of fire and water. So that is a person that's a little bit more fiery in nature. They have very strong digestion because of the, the fires in their uh, metabolic system. But too much fire can create um, migraine headaches, uh, acid reflux, heartburn, can create redness in the skin, rosacea, eczema, skin problems. And uh, emotionally, it can create like anger, um, criticism, judgment, and so on. That's all from too much heat in the body. I could just go back because it's important. I left this out for vata dosha, vata, the air and space dosha. Um, emotionally, when they're out of balance, they worry, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, ungroundedness, because they're usually lighter than the other doshas. So mm-hmm. Pitta gets out of balance with that anger and fire and blah, screaming, and they need anger management classes. Um, and then we have the third dosha, which is comprised of the elements of earth and water, which is kapha. And so kapha dosha is a little bit bigger than the other doshas, a little bit because um, they have more earth and water in their body. So a little bit curvier, but they're also, they're stable and steady, great stamina. They're very solid people. They're the foundation that holds the other doshas together. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually very nice. They're people pleasers. They don't know how to say no, but they tend to like hold on to things. So they hold on to excess weight and hold on to people and jobs and relationships that are no longer good for them. You know, stuff they hoard. They just always want to be surrounded by stuff. And so, and the problems with kapha is this excess water can cause like sinus problems, seasonal allergies, Um, bronchitis, coughing, phlegm, like those kind of issues, as well as obesity. Now, can you be a combination? Because I'm trying to think of myself and I feel like I have bits of every. Yeah, you look pretty much like your vata pitta, but um, the, yes, we are all a combination of all Okay. You need the air and space to move. You need the fire for metabolism and you need the earth and water to hold you together. But usually one or two predominate. Okay. So like, um, you know, we can like look at some famous people and see like, um, I'll just use Donald Trump because he's a perfect example of a pitta dosha out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that anger, criticism, judgmental, the me, 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 the ego, the all that people, places, possessions, all that first. Mm -hmm. Um, But then he had a Kafic imbalance because he's very fat. And Mm -hmm. so he's got way too much Kafa. I understand that he eats incessantly. (laughs) So, so, you know, and he surrounds himself with so much stuff. And so that's, that's, um, so he would be a Pitta Kafa. Yeah. So it really does go into your behaviors. Absolutely. It's not, as we said before, it's not just the eating, right? There's no separation. No separation between mind and body. It's the whole. So when you work with people, they even though they may come to you with specific issues that start out as nutritional in nature, you're getting into. Do you consider that like a therapeutic type approach? Then it it is like therapy, but if it's way over my head and something like really much more serious than I can handle, I'm always. Um, leading people to get counselors or therapists or acupuncture to create like a support team where Mm -hmm. I've just provide part of that. Mm -hmm. But when I work with a client, you know, we, I give them a dosha quiz, I sort of feel pulses, I look at tongues, you look at eyes. 
you can tell someone's dosha by their email. If it's like a whole rambling long email with no paragraph, they're vata. If it's perfectly like lined up and everything, it's very, very concise and precise, it's pitta. And if it's just like very round and fluffy and paragraphs and so sorry to bother you and so on, it's kapha. So you can just like, wow. you could, there's a lot of different ways to tell. And but, so that's what I've learned over the years. So one of the most important things though, is that Ayurveda is a, is a science of opposites. So the person who is dry and cold, they need to eat food that is warm and moist. To replace what they don't have. Yes. So the person that is too hot needs cooling foods. The person that's too heavy needs lighter foods. So, and then we also balance that with the season, like spring season now. It's heavy with usually heavy rains and sometimes it's very cold and solid. You know, the earth gets really wet and, and heavy. So we do everything we can do to ameliorate that heaviness and we eat lighter foods, greens, dandelion greens and drink stinging nettle tea and all this stuff to sort of like balance us with the season. Less dairy and more, you know, um, foods that aren't heavy, foods that are lighter and so on. Mm -hmm. So we also look at that for each each person who comes in, I see where they're out of balance. Sometimes it can be a little tricky, like for instance, like a vata person who might be overweight. So you don't want to, so for the overweight, you would sort of dry them up and cool them down a little bit, but for, you don't want to do that to a vata person too much because that can really exacerbate their vata, make them fearful and anxious and so on. So it's a little bit of a balance. You have to find out, you know, baby steps, what you can do to help this out. Maybe do extra skin oiling while you're eating less dairy and so on. So, you know, there's just different ways of, of, sort of finagling it. But in both of my books, there are dosha quizzes that taken, especially in the new book, Seasonal Self-Care Rituals. There's a great dosha quiz that I created that takes a lot of your lifestyle into account. And so that can help you figure out where you might be out of balance. But if you're not facing any sort of serious illness or problem, it's just best to go with the seasons. So in springtime, you eat lighter foods and summertime, you eat cooler foods and the winter you eat heavier and grounding foods. So I have grocery lists for everything. And mm -hmm. um, that's just being seasonal is really the best way. Mm -hmm. to now, find so you're saying being seasonal might not be an approach specific to what type you are, but is just more eating in a way that's in concert with the energy of the environment. Yeah. Yeah, but if you know that you're prone to like um, heat rash or outbreaks of something in the summertime, then you would really concentrate on a lot of that pitta cooling energy. Um, so you can always take your dosha into account, but you don't need to be fixated on it. Got it. Um, I'm wondering, and I'll, I'll figure, I'll find this out when I get the book, but I'm wondering, you know, kind of the accessibility to the shopping list. So like a lot of what you're talking about, are they things to buy that are generally available to people? Yeah, absolutely. My shopping lists are totally Western foods, Okay, um, but there are Indian beans and dal and recipes in there as well. And so you either, you know, a lot of people do have Indian stores in their towns. If right. not, you can order things online, but otherwise it's totally 
you know, it's just like letting people know like you don't really eat watermelon in December, even though it's available. You don't really need to have a mango in December. It's a summertime food, you know, but right. surprisingly citrus is a winter food, oranges and so on. They are winter food. So it's like, so you can learn, you know, what the, the food is, even though for, in most places, everything is available year round. So we have forgotten what it means to eat seasonally. Right. And so that is why this book is a great reminder of how to eat seasonally. Mm -hmm. There's also, I, I learned a lot of this from Dr. John Duyard, who is in um, Boulder, Colorado. And he has a place called Life Spa, L-I-F-E-S-P-A, lifespa.com. And about 20 some years ago, he wrote a book called The Three Season Diet. And so that is really when I began practicing Ayurveda, where I learned about seasonal eating was from Dr. Duyard's books. Mm -hmm. And he's got some great books, also on breath work and so on. I use a lot of his stuff in my book and I, you know, I attribute it to him. Right. But he, he was just so smart about translating the Indian, the Indian way of practicing Ayurveda to a more Western way, but keeping those principles together. Intact. Um, I'm wondering for people who see you who are in an active process in terms of maybe they have a chronic health condition like diabetes, or maybe um, they have other issues like thyroid issues, something where they are in a pretty traditional clinical track. Is your work with them par running parallel to that? Yeah, so definitely. So of course I look at the medication they're taking. I never tell anybody to stop their medication ever. Um, I do suggest to see a functional medicine doctor who might be able to help them get off the medication. But at the same time, I introduce them to foods, herbs, and supplements that can help that situation. Mm -hmm. So for diabetes, of course, we want to reduce sugars in the body. And so there's there's a couple different um, Ayurvedic herbs that can help to do that. I'm not even going to say them because I don't want anybody to run out and buy them <laughs> without talking to a practitioner. But then there's some things like thyroid you mentioned. So there are um, there are definitely um, Ayurvedic herbs to use um, for thyroid function. But for, I had a I had a nodule on my thyroid and do see I have a little scar in mm -hmm. 2000 and five or six, I had to have the nodule removed and they removed part of my thyroid and my thyroid function never came back. So I was on synthetic th thyroid for a little while and it made me nuts. And then I learned about armor thyroid, which is a porcine, a pig thyroid. I'm a Jewish vegetarian, but I take pig thyroid and I bless that pig every morning. <laughs> and it comes from armor meat company and it's called armor thyroid. And th that is 0.9% the same T3, T4 as human thyroid. Mm -hmm. And so that was beautiful and that works for me beautifully. So would that be considered a natural approach versus- yeah, It is a natural approach, but, yeah, but you need a prescription. And so when I started practicing Ayurveda, I asked several doctors, I was like, how can I get off of armor thyroid? So I don't need to take porcine thyroid tissues into my body every day. And so the remedies were like four different Ayurvedic herbs every day for the rest of my life. And I thought to myself, do I really want to do that? <laughs> or can I, you know, can I make peace with just doing the one pill a day for the rest of my life? So right. you have to weigh that in your life. Some people might say, yes, I want to take the four supplements and so on. 
But for me, it was a lifestyle thing. And I said, I'm just going to continue them with the armor. So there's always some, there really is always some sort of remedy in Ayurveda and Chinese medicine to help Western ailments that we might have. Got it. But, but there are also things in Western medicine that work well. Right. And so we really need to weigh that in our own life and see what, what works best for us. Mm-hmm. But first and foremost, I recommend a change in diet. I take out all the crap and I, then maybe I'll do a cleanse with them and then I'll put in all the good stuff and I'll have them do a good Ayurvedic diet for a month, check back in, see how they're doing or two or three weeks, depending on the person. And then I might, you know, maybe a supplement or two here and there, but mostly I try to change diets and exercise, getting outside, balancing yourself, with the elements outside of us and so on. Just the whole package, movement, breath, sleeping better, good elimination. You have to have good bowel movements to get rid of the waste. And Mm -hmm. so we really want to figure out the whole daily routine to create the sort of the the remedies and the rituals for very healthy, sustainable practice. Right, right. Yeah. When you talk about elimination, I recently within the past, like six or seven months, um, have been reading so much more and listening to podcasts. I bought fiber fueled by this physician, Dr. Will Buskowitz. And I've learned so much just from, you know, not doing any formal studying, but just all those other sources in terms of the gut microbiome. And it seems to be such an interesting part of the body that oftentimes get gets overlooked. And it's funny if you follow or have ever seen Dr. B's posts on Instagram, he actually has pictures of poop and he says, your poop should look like this and not like this. And if it looks like this, it means you're constipated, blah, blah, blah. So I've become much more educated on a lot of things. Uh, and, and it was interesting to me because even things like fermented foods. I'm a yogi who doesn't really drink anything that's fermented. Um, but I didn't realize things like sauerkraut and sourdough bread were fermented and the benefit to the microbiome. So I'm just curious in your line of work, how the gut microbiome, how you address that. Yeah. I love that. So I write a lot about that in this book. Okay. Not only the gut microbiome, but the skin has a microbiome too. So this is fascinating, but the gut microbiome, what I learned is that um, there, there are several studies of indigenous people and indigenous tribes that show that the tribes move in Africa, these studies, the tribes move according to the season to keep to get different food, they must eat differently each season because the microbes change in their system. Yeah. If they continue on that same diet without varying the food or changing with the season, they get sick. Yes, they were talking about this tribe, Dr. Hadsta. They're called the Hadsta tribe. Yes, and something about the, the number of different plants they ate every week was something like, I don't know, in the fifties or sixties. And it just made me think about how many different plants do I eat in a week? Probably five or six, maybe. Yeah. It was a groundbreaking study because you really saw the seasonal differences in the microbiome in the gut and how important it was to eat a wide variety of food that's seasonally appropriate. And so that, that's one of the reasons that this book came about when I saw that, I mean, Ayurveda is about the season have a study, a modern study that you can put in there. It's really cool. And then we also know that the serotonin comes from the gut. And so you need to eat well in order for your mind to be happy. 
So this is neurotransmitter serotonin mood stabilizer. It's a mood stabilizer, but they call it the happy, they call it the happy hormone. Yeah. Because it makes you happy. So if you're eating, if you're eating oatmeal for breakfast, a salad for lunch and pizza for dinner, every single day, every season, you are not properly feeding your gut microbiome. So you need to go out and find your blueberries in the springtime and your raspberries and then your, um, your green beans and zucchini in the summer and your pumpkin and your sweet potatoes in the fall. You know, we need to bring all that various food into our system to keep that good bacteria nourished, basically. Right. It's interesting though, because I think, and I'm speaking for myself, although my boyfriend with whom I live has the same pattern and we have different patterns of pretty much eating the same stuff quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like that is really like a, an American thing that we pretty much eat. People in the United States pretty much eat a pretty regular diet. And by regular, I mean the same things a lot. So it sounds like not only for the health of the gut microbiome, but just in being in concert with what you teach Ayurveda, it's important to have variety. Why, why is that? Because, of, because when the seasons change, your intestinal uh, microbes change. And if you're not feeding them a different variety of food, they're just going to die away. And then you can have an accumulation of toxins because stuff isn't being broken down properly. Right. We need to introduce these varied foods into our diet every day, Mm -hmm. Um, seasonally appropriate foods every day. So I try to really help people who get in a rut where they, you know, have that same thing. I offer simple recipes, things that you can throw together. So you can have uh, like 10 different things that you like to eat with each season. But so let's say you have a basis of just like making a vegetable soup. Well, in different seasons, you use different vegetables. So winter and zucchini and string beans in spring and summer or mushrooms, you know, so or, or dandelion greens or mustard greens or kale or chard, or, you know, there's so many different things that you can do. So you can have your basic recipe. Let's say you just like to make steamed rice and you can use different spices, different vegetables and so on, different beans, different dal, lentils that you can combine. But it's all becomes very easy once you learn the basis of Ayurveda cooking you understand the season you're in and you understand your dosha Mm -hmm. and you really can create a plan that makes it doable. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a specific question about a specific thing, which seems to be all over the place these days in terms of posts and social media things. And I think I've even seen it mentioned on commercials, turmeric. So I, I, is that considered an Indian spice? Yes. I have not a lot of familiarity with Indian food, but um, it looks because of its color to me, like something you would see in an Indian restaurant. Can you talk a little bit about what, I'm, I'm not sure why it's, I mean, it seems to be all the rage now for yeah. it's, it's decreasing inflammation <laughs> properties. Yeah. So it's been, it's been the rage for 5,000 years, but it just hit the States. Right. I think the rage, so there's a couple of things that modern day rage. Yeah. Right. There's just a couple of things I want to say about turmeric. First of all, it's a rhizome. It's a root. Um, it's, uh, kind of looks like ginger when it's in the ground, like a skinny ginger. Um, so you can buy the root and you can just scrape off the skin with a spoon and you can chop it up. And then you have fresh turmeric that you can throw into soups or salads or whatever you want to make stir fries, 
we eat turmeric and eggs and so on. So that's one way you can eat it with the rhizome. The other way is the, it's the powder, the ground organic turmeric powder. And you always wanna make sure to have a little bit of fat as sort of the delivery system of sp all spices and herbs to your body. So we use a lot of ghee. So sauteing your spices like turmeric, cumin, coriander, fennel, and a little bit of ghee or another high heat oil like avocado oil or coconut oil, and then mixing that with your food. That brings out all the healing properties in it. So the thing about turmeric is that it is a huge anti-inflammatory. Um, it, it has a way of sort of washing through your tissues and seeking out areas of inflammation and helping to reduce that. If you look on um, websites like PubMed and you just put turmeric in, you'll get all of these studies, like even for like Alzheimer's and all sorts of stuff, they're doing studies with turmeric. But what happens in America is that they hear like a good thing or in the West, like turmeric, let's put it in a capsule. Let's make it in a tablet or something. And they take the isolate out. Now the isolate of turmeric is called cucurmin. Yes, so I've heard of this in David Sinclair's book, Lifespan. Okay. He talks about giving it to his, he talks about his father who's in his eighties taking it and it's, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, so here's the problem though. Take, they take out the cucurmin and they make it like super potent. And then they have to add in some other things so your body can absorb it like black pepper. And so in Ayurveda, we say, why, why would you isolate you know, something from the whole when you can just put on your food and cook with it? And then you know, people are just lazy in America, I'm sorry to say, and they just wanna take the pill not going to do the same thing for you is heating it up with the good oil, mixing it in your food, and then it's absorbed through your, through your whole system. It goes through your liver, it goes through your colon, your intestines. This is what you want. You don't want to take a pill that's just going to sort of wash through everything and maybe sit in your stomach. Maybe you'll benefit from it somehow. Got it. Got it. So my Ayurvedic teachers in India say to have at least a teaspoon of turmeric in your diet every day. Okay. Okay. And that is for all doshas. And again, you can make golden milk and put some turmeric in it. Like I love to put it on eggs or just about anything savory I'm making up with turmeric in. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I recently bought it as a spice yes. and I have it by the stove. Great. So tell me if this is appropriate. I'm just, as you say, if I'm stir frying vegetables, I'm sprinkling it in there. If I'm making soup, I'm sprinkling it in there. Egg, you know, so is that a reasonable yes. way? Because yep. I literally never until a few months ago had any in my life. Yeah, cooking with it is better than putting it on your food after it's already cooked. Okay. So having it by the stove and cooking with it is the way you should do it. Got it. So every, every spice we use in Ayurveda, every spice anyway, has some healing properties. And there's books written on the healing properties of spices, but things like cumin, coriander, fennel, um, ajwan, uh, fenugreek, um, ginger, and then like garlic and onions and so on, and herbs like cilantro, parsley, they, they all have specific things that they heal in the body. So it's a huge list. <laughs> yeah, I remember in the beginning of COVID, you couldn't get garlic because there was information out there that garlic was had healing properties, maybe not specifically for COVID, but just for the immune system. Oh, it's definitely an immune booster. Yeah. Going definitely. to the grocery store and you just could not find it. 
in, in fresh form. Sometimes you could find the jars with right. the mixed garlic. And I'll tell you that the powder to the powder version of garlic is very potent because it's very concentrated. So that that's a fine choice too. Same with ginger. They're okay. very potent. Same so it sounds like you would recommend it's it's funny. I always am kind of toying between fresh spices or fresh um like herbs, like when you go to the grocery store and there's the yeah. whole in the vegetable section versus the spices, would you recommend, you know, as a regular thing beyond turmeric, all those other spices you mentioned, just being liberal and adding those to what you cook? Um, yeah, I, well, I, I, you know, you don't want to be too liberal because you can overdo it and okay. they all have very potent, um, potent health benefits as well as taste. So I actually keep um, an Indian spice tray on my um, kitchen counter. It's a round tray that has, they're called tallies, like seven different little containers in it. And in that, and it has two covers on it to keep everything fresh. Mm -hmm. So in that, I keep my turmeric, coriander, cumin, ajwan, which is another Ayurvedic herb. Um, I have coriander powder, coriander seeds, fennel powder, fennel seeds, ginger, turmeric, and black mustard seeds. These are things I cook with all the time. So I just take off the top and then I put in a little half a teaspoon or something into my food as I'm cooking it, depending on what I'm cooking. And then I seal it back up again. So I think having the powdered spices on hand is really important. Yeah. But um, because things like cilantro and parsley, dill, thyme, margarine, they go bad very fast. Mm -hmm. So you either, another thing I do with those is I freeze them. I sort of chop up, I do a rough chop of like cilantro and I mix it with water and I put it into an ice tray and I freeze it. And then when I'm cooking, I just take a couple of ice cubes of cilantro or parsley, do it too, take them out and put that in my soup. So you don't have to worry about having it on hand fresh all the time. Interesting. Now I'm assuming in all of what you recommend to people, you're not recommending anything processed. (laughs) Like we're not really eating any of that stuff. No. Okay. It's not about food. Okay. What about just not food? What? Bread or pasta. Bread is is beautiful. Bread and pasta are beautiful. If you have, and it depends on your dosha, like some doshas do better with gluten, some without. It should always be organic when you're dealing with gluten, wheat, and oats and beans. It should always be organic. Um, But um, depending on your dosha. But I I say if, if the label has more than like five or six ingredients on it, that's a good guideline to toss yeah, it. Don't yeah. need it. You I know, even I started thinking that with this dog and I hadn't really thought that oh, with yeah. the prior dog. Oh, we, I looked we, at the back. Oh yeah. We feed our dogs organic dog food. Yeah. And we do a lot of raw. Um, we buy raw organic dog food, dog yeah. meat mixed with vegetables, bone and organs and so on. Yeah. Let's say get organics brand and I give them eggs and pumpkin and cottage cheese and yeah. bone broth. Oh my God. I make them bone broth. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They're doing great there, huh? Oh my God. They're the happiest dogs. In the yeah. World. Yeah. But that's interesting. Cause I know, you know, of course the Western diet has a lot of processed food. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I can't, although, um, anything in terms of, I'm just thinking in terms of convenience for people, um, energy bars or anything along those, nothing, nothing really. I'm such a visceral reaction to that. Nothing. That stuff I have to, it is fucking crap. I just have to even like some of the brands that promote themselves as being, I can't think of them by name, but I know, I mean, if you go to whole foods, for instance, which here in 
you know, I, here, no, like, don't, no, nothing. No, you're not going to sell me on this. No. Okay. Neither cliff bars, Luna bars, raw bars. Yeah. All. Nothing like that. No. <laughs> so you're really just like, if you're on the go and you need to eat something, you're eating fruit or nuts. No, no, you learn how to you learn how to make your meals. And first of all, we want our meals to be cooked. We want to avoid raw foods because they're hard to digest. So you learn how to throw together your beans and rice, your grains, your greens. Yeah. And you can heat them up on your stove in the morning, put them in a thermos, take it on the go if you're yep. going somewhere and have it warm when you get there. Yeah. So you, you have to learn how to do this if you're really interested in your health. Yeah. then you're, you're going to stop buying juices and bars and, and, um, yeah. you know, like during the pandemic, like we really got into like, you know, we fell back into old habits, like chips and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's just so bad. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, you know, potentially depending on the person, although I think, you know, for some people, I actually just interviewed a hand surgeon for, uh, the, podcast episode that's just been released and he um found yin yoga on oh. during the time that he wasn't in the or that much because people weren't doing anything and they weren't getting hurt or their chronic conditions like carpal tunnel weren't getting exacerbated by physical movement so he actually so i mean i think you know for some people maybe did you have additional clients come on board during the past year i'll bet so i mean it's crazy yeah. i never okay like this but from like all every corner of the world from australia to denmark to, wow. to like it's crazy yeah but it, it's great i mean people really but i also you know we we went into a lot of bad habits too in the beginning of the pandemic and then we're like you know this is gonna go on forever so yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you find it hard to buy what you typically eat in um, yes in the beginning it was so hard to find beans and rice basically and so I do have an Indian store nearby and we tried to stock up there. Um, but then we stopped going out. We're trying to order online from like Vitacost and Eden Foods and so many things were out. Yeah. 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 Well, we, was... we really, I started stocking us up in February yeah. of 2020. So we had a, you know, we had a good uh, yeah. storehouse of uh, yeah. those dry goods and canned organic beans. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't have dry, the canned organic ones are really great. Mm -hmm. um, we're mostly vegetarian. We eat some fish, but you know, our staples are beans and rice and quinoa and millet. Those are got it. Got it. So um, I want to just kind of see if we can, I, I always challenge people with these final thoughts. I'm just wondering, I definitely want you to tell folks um, before we wrap up about your books, because I think those sound like they're really tactical in terms of giving people a lot of just techniques that they can use. I guess I'm just wondering from an overall perspective, if someone is wanting to get started with this kind of approach to wellness, are there a couple things that they can do to just kind yeah. of get the ball rolling? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So a few things that everybody can do that's balancing for every dosha is first of all, to uh, try to avoid raw, cold food. Um, foods like eating a lot of salads or even a lot of raw fruit that can be very hard to digest. And so we want our things to be warm or at least lightly cooked because then we're, we can more effectively extract nutrients 
and more efficiently get rid of waste from the food when it's not when, when it's not raw. Some doshas do okay with raw. Pitta does a little bit better because they're so hot, but vata is so cold and dry. Kapha is cold and wet. They're not very good at breaking down raw food. And so they can feel depleted and lack of energy and you know down emotionally because they're not getting their nutrients. So try to avoid raw food. Okay. Um, avoid cold drinks. Don't drink ice drinks. Ice puts out your digestive fires. Everything in Ayurveda is about stoking these digestive fires. It's like a fireplace in your tummy. And if you have too much cold, you're dousing it with. Your body has to try so hard to heat up the food to digest it. All right. Well, so I'm already I'm already doing both of these things. I'm eating fresh fruit salads and drinking water with ice. Oh, <laughs> no more ice. Okay. All right. No Keep more going. Ice. <laughs> and then another thing everybody can do is eat three meals a day and don't snack. Your largest meal of the day should be between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. When the sun is the highest in the sky, it soaks your pitta to digest your food. Largest meal of the day between 10 and 2. Each meal should be about two handfuls of food, which is two thirds of your stomach, leaving one third open for the digestive fires to break down the food. In Buddhism, they say you leave one third for the Dharma, for the teachings of the Buddha. And wow. even in, in Japanese, I have a saying, I think it's harihachibu, which means eat 80%. So we really don't, that, that bowl is two thirds. Okay. Two handfuls together is two thirds. You do not want to, if you eat too much, it's like putting too many logs in your fireplace, you put out the fire. Okay. okay? So we need to keep that fire stoked. And now um, we don't eat snacks because if you start eating snacks in the middle of the day, you put out, the, um, you stop this process of your body digging deep for stored pockets of energy to keep you going. That's how we get rid of toxins. We eat a meal, it's digested, and then your metabolism rests and your body digs deep into these stored pockets to keep you going. And that's when we get rid of the stuff we don't need. So is this related to this intermittent fasting kind of sort it of? It is, but it comes way before that term ever was. <laughs> right. I know. I know. That's why I'm bringing up all these like current <laughs> things and you're like, yo, we knew about that. That's old school. Yeah. It's like, did you hear about bell bottoms? Yeah. <laughs> they were a thing. Yogi pants. That's funny. <laughs> um, but with these, just to the three meals a day thing, um, your dinner should be light. Because unless you work a night shift, then we have to change things around a little bit. But dinner should be light at least three hours before bed. You don't need a heavy dinner because you're not doing anything anymore. You're just winding down. And if you have too much food in your system, it's very hard to digest that. When you go to sleep, your body goes through this whole metabolic process of separating nutrients from waste. And then you go into your deep sleep. But if you ate too much, a heavy meal, you're going to have acid reflux. It's going to push the hydrochloric acid up and your body's not going to be able to digest everything else you took in during the day, emotions as well as food. Wow. So we want to have a light meal. Um, definitely liquor really has very little place in, in Ayurveda. Wine and beer can be okay, depending on your dosha. Um, chocolate can be okay, depending on your dosha. Even coffee can be okay, depending on your dosha. Um, and things like matcha and black tea or herbal teas are, you know, they have a place in Ayurveda. Hmm. But um, what was that? Wait, what? Oh, intermittent fasting. So the thing is, so you have your last meal about three hours before bed. So, so you finish eating at seven. I say to my clients, kitchen closed. 
no more kitchen after seven, maybe for a cup of tea, but that's it. Okay. And then you go to sleep by 10. So you have like this three hour time period where you're not eating before you go to bed, but so you go, you stop eating at seven and then you go to sleep the next morning. Like for me, I'm not hungry till 10. So I've had this huge fast where my body can really just process out any extra crap and the other stuff that's in there that it needs to. And it just also gives my digestive system a rest. We say rest and digest. You can't keep putting stuff in like grazing is the antithesis of the Ayurvedic diet. If you keep putting in, it's just exhausting to your metabolic yeah. system Yeah, and you feel depleted. Yeah. So I love this eating at seven and not eating until eight, nine or 10 the next morning. For me, that feels great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for me, my very best days in the springtime, eating around 10 or 11, and then eating around four or five, and that's it. And I feel great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's not for everybody, but that works for me. Yeah, I even think of some of the scheduling that you're discussing it really runs counter to how many people, I mean, the family dinner, the going out to dinner, the eating dinner, watching the news, the, I mean, it's, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, dinner, I mean, believe me, I can let go of a lot of things that were kind of, you know, the food pyramid, you know, but, um, but I don't know. That's, that's interesting. It's, it's basically suggesting dinner is really lunch. Yeah. So I think like, in, I think in the, like farmers used to call it supper, like lunch was called dinner and dinner was called supper. <laughs> Because dinner was the bigger meal and they came in from the fields and they had this huge meal and then they, then they went back out to work and then they came back and they had supper, maybe just some soup and toast or something yeah. before going to bed and getting up early again. And so that I tell my clients, I'm like, just try this for 21 days. Just right. go ahead. You can do it for 21 days. I know you can. And let me know how you feel. Invariably, they feel great. Yeah. Yeah. You just feel great. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, all right. So let's be, I want to ask you one other question in terms of like, for you, you know, you've written these two books, you know, you're seeing so many more clients now because everything's gone virtual. Um, what's kind of next for you, or is it kind of growing this online support program? You know, it's funny. I'm not really like a it sounds silly, but I don't feel like I'm a driven person. <laughs> like gotta do this and gotta do that. Like, I don't know. I don't really feel that way. I am. I have some other book proposals I'm working with, with my agent on and we'll see, but I, I don't really have a sense of urgency about anything. Yeah. Honestly, during pandemic, I've really, I hate to say it, but like, I've enjoyed this quiet time, not seeing people like we're not going out and doing stuff like that. And just um, going more deeply within and just being a little quieter and seeing what feels important, what you can let go of. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I, find, you know, I yeah. find it fascinating because I'm, I'm completely the opposite and I would love to explore being more, being less driven and being okay with the accompanying anxiety that seems to come with that. Well, when that's the vision. Yeah coming when I envision being like that, because then I think, Oh, if I'm not doing this, then that won't happen. And that that goes completely with your dosha. That's completely with your dosha. And my kapha dosha helps me be more calm. Although sometimes I wonder like, well, I should be doing more. And then I'm like, ah, whatever, you know, (laughs) it's just like, (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. Which I think really it speaks to having, I guess, a bit of each is, is a, a nice arrangement to have some of the qualities of, of each one. So, but you've inspired me just in that little snippet of statement to, uh, because I do truly believe that sometimes in our quietest moments, we do have these revelations, especially if we are working on a number of things, you know, the classic example of being in the shower and thinking of the solution. Right. Uh, or I used to have a client I would see for uh, yoga, private yoga sessions, and he is an entrepreneur and he would always come up from Shavasana and he would twirl his hair in this very um, interesting way. And he would come up and he'd say, you know, Karen, I think I've solved that problem. And I'm like, you were supposed to be relaxing, but right. it wasn't even like he was trying to solve the problem. Yeah, trying can throw some wrenches in there, but it's also different stages of life. Like how old are you? I'll be 57 this year. Oh, we're, we're the same age, I'm 57. But yeah, but so it's then in this case, it's more of a doshic thing, but also at 57, 58, 60, you start to go into your Vata stage of life, which yeah. is a more creative time period. And um, so, you know, I kind of feel like I'm just sort of sliding. I want to be more creative. I want to make things, do things. I'm writing more, more memoir and doing things like that. I'm actually teaching writing now. I forgot that. I just got certified in a type of writing awesome. <laughs> called Gateless, Gateless uh, Salon. So I actually lead Gateless writing salons online. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's so I guess I am always doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it, what you describe, I think, is more of a, 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 a way of being, of doing. You know, like I think of a way of being, of doing when you're kind of the classic type A is being very different from what you describe, which I think comes with an ease that I think in a way lends itself to the creative yeah. process. And actually in an odd way, I think kind of lends itself to getting things done in a much more organic, less stressful exactly. way. Exactly. <laughs> sort of unfold organically, sometimes trying to push your way through it is you're missing something. Yes. Totally, totally, totally. I, and I find because I teach anatomy to teachers, there's the forcing forcing myself to learn this or there's like the allowing it to happen and and the latter is always the more successful less stressful approach yeah <laughs> um well before we wrap up tell people how they can get your books sure so my um books are available everywhere books are sold um try to shop at your independent bookstore if possible but there's also bookshop.org yeah. bookshop.org takes you to your local bookstores of course you can get them on amazon you can yeah. also get books from my website i'll sign them and send them to you oh lovely and, yeah and my my business is called breathe ayurveda like eat sleep and breathe um ayurveda b-r-e-a-t-h-e and Ayurveda is A-Y-U-R-V-E-D-A. I think actually, if you just Google Susan and Ayurveda, I come up. Okay. <laughs> you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and my website and all that kind of stuff. And on Instagram, what's your handle on Instagram? I think it's Susan Weissbowl and Ayurveda. Okay, perfect. Perfect. I, I will, I will verify that and put it in the show notes. Okay. Let's, and let's my, that is definitely my Facebook business is Susan Weissbowl and Ayurveda. Awesome. Yeah, I might just be Susan Ayurveda. I don't I'll, know. I'll check it. And, <laughs> and for people listening, when they 
listen, they'll see the show notes and it'll have the, okay. the correct link. Cool. Well, it's been, it's been wonderful to, to meet you. This has been, you know, again, a first meet and greet uh, on the podcast, which I love. And I really appreciate your time. This has been fascinating. And, you know, I think it was um, hard for me to just be an objective questioner because I was thinking about a lot of what you were saying with regard to myself. Um, I hope for the listeners, I was able to kind of keep pulling back to general questioning because um, I think it's just such a valuable conversation. And, and I hope it's opened people's minds to new ways of thinking. And you gave us some great little things we can do to get going. Yeah. And I'm sure people can relate to the questions you ask. There's a lot of universal things. So yeah. Karen, I think it's great that you bring this to your audience. And Awesome. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I will be on today's, let's see, in real time today is Tuesday. This will go live on Monday and I'll send you the link Monday. Fantastic. You can can listen to share it with whomever you want. I will. I'll share it with everybody. All right. Well, hugs to the dogs. Thank you to you too. Coco is fast asleep. I know. Have fun with Coco. Yeah. My (laughs) little Junie's asleep too. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And I will be sure uh, to follow up with Margaret because she was so excited that we were chatting today. That's great. Thank you (laughs) so much, Karen. So great to meet you. Same here. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my Mentorship Program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.